Philippians chapter 4. The title of the message this morning is Partnering Through Contentment. Partnering Through Contentment. <clears throat> the big idea, if you're taking notes for at least this passage, is this. Contentment in Christ broadens and empowers opportunities to partner together for the gospel. Again, contentment in Christ broadens and empowers opportunities to partner together for the gospel. If you've been here from the beginning of our Philippians series, or if maybe you've gone back and listened to uh, the beginning, if you haven't been here for the entire thing, you'll know that we uh, kind of came up with this, this subtitle. You know, we, we like to, to stick with the book name because we typically preach through books most of the time. Uh, we like to have the book name as the focus, obviously, of the, of the sermon series. But we like to have a little subtitle kind of give us some direction of what we're, what we're understanding is may, kind of the main thrust of the passage. Um, and you notice in the, in the bottom left, right-hand corner there, it has our little... Um, statement there, partnering in the gospel, partnering in the gospel. And this is kind of the, the overarching theme that we see uh, throughout the book of Philippians, namely because Paul is writing back to the Philippians because they have been partnering with him in the gospel. We know that the, the impetus for this uh, letter to the Philippians was that they had sent a gift, a monetary gift with a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And they had sent that to, to Paul, who we know is in Rome. He is uh, under house arrest. He's chained to uh, one of the Praetorian guards day and night. Um, he's locked down. And so Paul receives this gift. He receives uh, the gift of money, also the gift of service from Epaphroditus. And, and Paul is grateful and sees it as them partnering with him in the gospel. And so that is kind of the overarching theme is Paul is sending this letter back very much so in, in gratitude for what they have done for him. Now, obviously, there, there are many other uh, things that Paul talks about. This is one of the few books where Paul um, doesn't really spend a bunch of time dealing with doctrinal issues. Um, he spends a lot more time in encouragement in the book of Philippians than he does in many of his other letters. But there are some other themes that we've seen as we've gone along the way, one of those being the gospel itself and the power of the gospel as we looked early on and saw that there's nothing that can stop the gospel from moving forward because it is God's word that is going forward. It is his work that is going forward and it's not determined by us how it, how it is effective. But the gospel is powerful and it is important both in the lives of those who have not heard the gospel and in our lives as well. We've seen the necessity and the call to humility for us as we interact with one another in the body of Christ, to, to act in a way that is humble towards one another, not full of pride, not, not seeking our own way. We've seen a call several times to unity in the body of Christ. And the necessity that we see unity is to gospel witness. Um, even Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Right? There's, there's a love and a unity there that, that Paul is calling these Philippian believers to. 
We also see reminders to be on guard for those, for those who would distort the gospel, to be on guard against those who would be using the gospel for their own personal gain, their own uh, desires. And so we've seen all of these different um, reminders, all these different sub uh, ideas in the book of Philippians, but the overarching concept is that we are partners as fellow believers, and specifically as fellow believers within this local church, we are partners together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we look at these last few verses here, um, Paul's not really doing any teaching in these passages. He's, he's really being more grateful than anything. He's, he's kind of wrapping up the letter. There's, it's a little bit more of a narrative here. But as we look at what Paul is saying to the Philippian believers in these last few verses, I think that we can see through Paul's example and how he interacts with the Philippian believers, we can see what the heart of contentment looks like, what partnering through contentment looks like. There's two main themes here in these last few verses. One of them is partnership. We're gonna see that over and over as he discusses finally, once again, this reality of their partnership with him. But then secondarily, the necessity of contentment in Christ and its impact on our gospel partnerships. So as we go through this, we'll just kind of go down again. This is not something that Paul is, is hammering on like we've seen in other passages. There's no uh, call necessarily that Paul is making. But I want you to notice some observations about how Paul interacts with the Philippians through his contentment, how he participates with them through his contentment. We know, Eric read through the, the passage already, we know that Paul is, is making this point that, that he is content. And, and again, he's not necessarily making it to say, look at me, I'm such a good person. But the reality of his contentment is going to ooze out into how he interacts with the Philippians. The first thing that I want to see or, the, or to observe here is that when we live in such a way, when we participate with one another in such a way that we are content, we will accept help joyfully. We will accept help joyfully. Let's take a look at that first verse there in, in verse 10. It says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. All right, you were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. It's, it's interesting here uh, that Paul is referencing this gift that they've been sent by, by Epaphroditus. He's brought it with them. Um, and we'll look more into that a little bit later. But he's in prison. He's in house arrest. Um, the opportunity has finally arisen for them to give. Now, we're going to look a little bit later at, at the fact that they've done this more than once, right? This is not a new thing for them to send a gift to Paul. But... It had been a while. It had been some time since they were able to partner with Paul in this particular manner of giving to his physical needs. And we don't really know why that has occurred. Uh, perhaps it's as simple as uh, Paul not necessarily needing something from them at the time. Uh, perhaps it's uh, something that was going on with uh, their communication. They, they couldn't maybe get a hold of him wherever he was. There, there wasn't an opportunity there. Um, maybe they didn't have anybody available or willing to go take a gift uh, until now. Maybe it was as simple as they didn't have the ability to do 
what they wanted to do. They didn't have, they had the desire, but they didn't have the ability. We don't really know why it is that it's, it's been such a time uh, since they've last given a gift to Paul. And, and again, Paul's not saying, I want this, right? He's not saying, I, I've been expecting this. Where is that? That's, that's not Paul's heart. But he, he's noticing that it's been a while since they've been able to do this. And he's, he recognizes that it's something that they desired to do. So now that, the, that he's in prison, or he's under house arrest, now that he has reached a point where, where he is in need, potentially because he's maybe paying for this house out of his own pocket. You know, we, we don't know exactly all of Paul's specific needs, but he was in need and this church realized that he was in need. <clears throat> Just a little side note here. Um, are you anxiously waiting for the opportunity to meet somebody else's need? Are you anxiously waiting for the opportunity to meet somebody else's lead? Are you, are you looking for opportunities? You know, a lot of times we, you know, we hear about an opportunity and, and we'll pray for somebody or we'll, we'll give towards something, whether it be our time or whether it be our money, whether it be our, our um, you know, counsel, whatever it is, we, we might interact once we hear about something. You know, that's, that's kind of how the benevolence works here at Liberty Hills. It's hard to be benevolent without knowing that there's a need, right? But, but are we interacting with one another in such a way that we are becoming aware of those needs, whether it's a physical need or whether it's a spiritual need? Are we, are we engaging one another? Are we partnering with one another in such a way that we are aware of those things going on in each other's lives? The Philippians, even though, again, we had this great gap, they, they were anxious, they were eager, right? What does he say there at the end of, of verse 10? He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The Philippians loved Paul. They, they were concerned for Paul. They wanted to help Paul in any way that they could. But until this point, since the last time, which had been quite some time, they, they just didn't have an opportunity for whatever reason. Is that, is that the same of us? Are we looking for opportunities to interact with people, to meet needs, to help others within the body of Christ? Are we seeking to stay in tune with one another so that we know when someone else needs our help? I know my family and I have been on the receiving end of benevolence. I know others in this church have been on the receiving end of benevolence. But I think there's something very interesting in the way that Paul handles this. Look at those first few words there in verse 10. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He says, I, have re I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul was rejoicing that they had an opportunity to meet his need. Think about that for a second. Paul was rejoicing that he was in a position that required their help. How often is that our attitude? You know, I know even when, you know, somebody comes up to me and says, you know, hey, you know, I heard you're having car troubles, you know, tell me about it. What, what, what do we try to do? We try to minimize it, right? Uh, yeah, it's no big deal. You know, I've, I've, I've got it. You know, this is going on. I've got it in the shop. It's not a problem, right? We try, to, we try to minimize where we're at in our need, right? Because it, we're, we're proud people. We don't, like, we don't like to be seen as people who are in need. We don't like to have others pity, 
right? We don't like other people to, I think in many ways, we think look down on us, right? Feel like we need, to, we, we need, to, we need them for something, right? Because we, we, we wanna be self-sufficient many times. And, and, and it's hard for us, even as believers in Christ, to, to oftentimes come to a place where we're, A, willing to even reveal the need, let alone be like Paul when he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Think about that. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I have been praising God that he has caused my circumstances specifically to give you an opportunity to meet my need. Is that how we view the circumstances of our life? Is that how we view the frustrations of our life? Whether it's a monetary issue, whether it's a relationship issue, do we view those as, as joyful things because God gets to use someone else to meet that need? That's tough. That's tough. Because a lot of times we're just focused on the need, right? We're just focused on the problem. We're just focused on the issue. We're focused on the pain and the, and the suffering that we're going through as we come to this time in need. But yet Paul, because he was content... He could accept help from others joyfully. He could accept help from others in a way that praised God for what he is doing. How often do we refuse to let someone provide a need because we don't view it from God's perspective? We don't know what God's trying to do in those times of need. Surely he's working in us to produce patience, to produce contentment in us but maybe God's even using that to produce spiritual growth in someone else as he works in them to meet that need. And so often we're quick to shut down. We're quick to, to not reveal the issue going on, whether it's a physical need or, or a spiritual need. Maybe it's just a difficulty that you're, you're dealing with in your, um, in your life through work or through marriage as a parent Maybe it's a sin that you've been struggling with over and over again. We're not willing to admit those things. We're not willing to ask for help. But yet God has designed the body of Christ for that purpose, to meet the needs of one another, both physical and spiritual. And so a person who lives in contentment, who partners with one another in the gospel through contentment is somebody who is going to be willing to rejoice at being the object of others' acts of kindness. Do you rejoice in that reality? Secondly, I see in verses 11 through 13 that if we are engaging, if we're participating through contentment, then we'll analyze circumstances equally. We'll analyze circumstances equally. If you haven't caught on yet, we're using A words this morning. Analyze circumstances equally. Verses 11 through 13 says this, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abounding abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, Paul doesn't see himself as being in need and it's not because he's proud. 
right? A lot of times that's our, that's our drive. Oh, I'm, I'm not in need. I'm okay. I've got this, right? We don't want somebody else to know. That's, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I don't view myself as being in need. I, I, I'm not going to say, no, I'm okay, and then go back over here to my bed and, and cry because I don't have something to eat, that's not the reality. I understand that, that there may be physical needs that I have, but my view, my perspective is one where I don't, I don't worry about it because I'm content. I don't worry about it because I'm content. I think it's interesting here that Paul says that I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is not something that, that he just magically came, you know, as soon as he got saved, boom, he's just content with everything. You know, this, this is something that is a learned process. It's something that we have to go through. It's something that God teaches us through years of trial and circumstances and situations. And, and if you know Paul's story, you know that he's gone through a lot of them, right? He's gone through beatings. He's gone through persecution. He's gone through um, shipwrecks, He's gone through all of these things, imprisonment. We can go on and on. Paul's gone through all these things. And, and all of them were in part to teach him contentment. In part to teach him that he needs to be content in the circumstances that he has. He needs to be satisfied in the circumstances that he's in. That's what contentment is. It's satisfaction in your circumstances. Now, there's a different word and a different C word that we looked at several weeks ago. Anybody remember what that was? It's kind of the opposite of contentment. Nobody? I'm hoping somebody says it because I just drew a blank. Look back in your notes. Anybody see it? It's the cure for, man, I thought that was going to help me. It didn't work. Complacency. Thank you. Complacency. Good job. All right. The, the one person who can still remember. All right. Complacency, the cure for complacency. There's a difference, right? There's a difference in being complacent, being like, well, I guess this is just the way that it is and I'm not gonna do anything, right? And then there's contentment that says, you know what? I'm doing everything that God has called me to do, but these are the circumstances that he has put me in, right? Complacency says, well, I guess I'm just stuck, in this, I'm, I'm gonna keep dealing with this struggle. I'm gonna keep, I'm just never gonna get ahead. That's complacency because you're not willing to do anything. And then there's contentment that says, I'm going to do everything that God desires, but whatever he brings, it's okay. I will be satisfied. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, he kind of gives us a couple of different lists uh, of examples of things that, that he is content in. And again, this is not Paul just bragging and boasting about what a good Christian he is, right? He's, he's helping them understand the way that he views their partnership with them. He views their partnership through the lens of his contentment. And because of that, he can be joyful in the fact that they have an opportunity to work with him, to, to partner with him in this way and his need to meet that need. But he also is able to look at those circumstances, to analyze those circumstances equally, he gives us two lists here. I kind of, they're, they're, they're comparisons, right? So I'm gonna kind of group them together into, into two lists here. The first group is what I call the needy circumstances, 
right? The needy circumstances. This includes uh, these words being brought low and facing hunger and being in need, all right? Being brought low, facing hunger, and being in need. That first word there, being brought low, is, uh, is interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about too much what that meant in the past, to be brought low. It's the word uh, tapenu. It means to humble or to make humble. All right, to humble or to make humble. And that's an interesting concept. When it says that I have been brought low, it means I have been humbled. I've been made humble. Have you ever been humbled before? Um, Maybe it was due to your own stupidity. (laughs) I remember as a kid doing some dumb things, you know, thinking that you can jump off of something and it not turning out very well. Uh, How many of you broke broken bones doing something that you probably shouldn't have done? Maybe. I actually have never broken a bone, thankfully. It's it's really amazing considering all the times I've been to the emergency room. but, but humility, being brought low, this is, not, this is not the same as I am going to be humble, right? This is not the same as I'm going to humble myself. This is something has humbled me, all right? Something has humbled me. Maybe uh, it's a, a failure at something that, that I've attempted. And so it's kind of, it's humbled me, uh, whether that's in, in something that I've attempted physically or maybe something that, that I was seeking to do uh, spiritually and, and maybe I was doing it in my own strength and, and, I, and it failed, or at least it failed what I thought it would, it would do. And so I've been humbled by that. Maybe uh, it's just a situation of, of a loss of power or authority. Uh, maybe at work, you know, somebody, another company takes over your your company, and all of a sudden, you're, you're not in the same position that you were anymore. Now you're under some other people, and, and some of that authority has been taken away. Some of, the, some of that power has been taken away. You've been humbled. How do we normally respond to being humbled? In our flesh, not very well. Am I right? Usually, when we respond to being humbled and and trying to regain the lost ground, do we not? We, we respond in trying to, to pull ourselves back up to, to what, we de- what we feel like we deserve. We, we try to defend ourselves, or we try to uh, make ourselves look better than perhaps we are. We try to sweep things under the rug uh, of our failures, not talk to anybody about it. Because we don't like being humbled. It's not an enjoyable place. It's a place of, oftentimes, of ridicule, of admonition. It's a place where many times somebody is going to have to come alongside and, and not just encourage you, but, but tell you that there's something wrong. Maybe something needs to change in your life. We don't like being humbled. But Paul says, I, I understand how to be humbled. I know how to be humbled. He's got two more here. He says, uh, not only being humble, but facing hunger and being in need. Those are very similar concepts, right? Facing hunger and being in need. I don't know how many of you uh, really know what it's like to be truly hungry. Um, Most of us in here probably have eaten today. Uh, If not, we've probably eaten in the last couple days. 
Um, we, we very rarely understand what it means to face hunger. Um, I, once in a while when I'm trying to do better at, at being physically fit, which is not as often as it should be, um, I, like to, I like to fast. I don't always do it for spiritual reasons. I think there are, there are good reasons to do it spiritually at times, but, but I like to fast. And, and I've fasted for two or three days, but the most I've fasted is five days. And I can tell you after five days, I was hungry. <laughs> I knew what it was like to, to lack food, all right? I was, I was very hungry. I was ready to eat after five days. Um, it's, it's hard. Your body is used to eating. Your body desires food. It needs food uh, to be able to, to be sustained. And so when you go for a long period of time, you need that, that sustenance. Uh, many times you need that sustenance just to, you know, to even do life, to, to live, to, to work. We need that sustenance. I think most of us don't understand what Paul says when, when he says, I, I know what it's like to be in need of food. Most of us had never been there. But Paul had literally been through the point where he hadn't eaten probably for days. And he maybe didn't even know where his next meal was gonna come from. And he says, even in that, I'm content. He's content no matter his circumstances, whether he is being humbled by life's circumstances or through God's uh, work in his life, whether he is without food, whether he is just dealing with some other need. Maybe it's a, another physical need or a, or a monetary need. All kinds of needs that we might have. Paul says, I have learned to be content. I've learned to be content. See, God does not necessarily promise that we will always have plenty. God does not promise that we will always have plenty. That's, that's the lie of the prosperity preacher. The lie of the prosperity preacher is that God, God's will for your life is to be healthy and wealthy, to never be sick and to have all that you need and more. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I have learned to be content even with nothing when I lose all praise and adoration and authority, when I lose all food, when I lose any other thing that I would need, I'm content. I'm content. That's the first section. The second section that Paul lists out here is what I call the abundant circumstances. The abundant circumstances. This includes abounding or, or having plenty is the idea. Facing plenty and having abundance. He's kind of using the same words over and over again there as he's making these comparisons. So there's, there's different circumstances. He says there's circumstances of being brought low, of being humbled, of, being, of dealing with need and facing hardship. Then there's circumstances of having plenty. Circumstances of, of having everything that I need, of having more than I need. Shouldn't it be easy to be content in those circumstances? You would think, right? You would think it would be easy to be satisfied when you have everything that you need. When, when everything is going well, shouldn't it be easy to be content? 
Jesus said this, it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why did he say that? Why did he say that? It's easier for a rich man, or it's easier for, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Because those who have plenty put their trust in their plenty. And oftentimes, even that is not enough. It's, it's never enough. Because their sufficiency is found in earthly things. They, their sufficiency is found in themselves and what they can do and what they can earn and what they can achieve. That's where their sufficiency is. That's where their hope is. And Paul says, I know what it's like to be content in these lowly ways, but I even know what it's like to be content when I have plenty, when I have an abundance. What's he saying there? He's saying, I know how to live in such a way that my sufficiency is not in those things. My hope is not in those things. I view my circumstances with plenty the same as I view my circumstances with nothing. How could he do that? How could he do that? He says in the middle of verse 12, I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret. What's the secret? Verse 13 probably one of the most misused verses in, in all of Christendom. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This verse gets quoted a lot. Oftentimes, it's interesting, this verse gets quoted um, out of context. It gets quoted um, as if it's a proof text for us to be able to do anything that we desire Anything that we, that we think we should be able to do, anything that we want to do, we kind of pull this, yank this verse out and we say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's Paul talking about though? Paul's talking about contentment. He's saying, I have learned the secret to being able to deal with hardship and, and to view my circumstances and hardship exactly the same as I view my circumstances when everything's going well. And that secret is because I find my sufficiency in Christ. I find my sufficiency in Christ. Is Christ enough? We just sang that song. Christ is enough for me. Did you mean that? Or were you just singing because that's what we were singing? Christ is enough for me. That was the motto of Paul. I can do all things. I can go through all of these circumstances, great circumstances, terrible circumstances. I can go through all of them because my strength is in Christ. It's not in my ability, it's not in my wealth, it's not in my health, it is in Christ alone. Are you content 
with Christ this morning. If you were sitting in a prison cell with Paul, beaten for sharing the gospel, would Jesus be enough? If your circumstances at work were difficult and full of persecution, would Jesus be enough? If your spouse is not living like they should and doesn't seem to want to change, would Jesus be enough? If a member of the church is in need and you can meet it, but it might not mean that you'll be able to get something that you're saving for, is Jesus enough? If your children turn their backs on what you've taught them, would Jesus be enough? Paul said, in all these circumstances, I can be content. The secret to my contentment is that Christ is enough. When we partner through contentment, we will view all of our circumstances equally because Jesus is enough. Thirdly, we will audit partnership gratefully. Verses 14 through 16, I've got to move quickly. I knew it was going to be fun trying to get through all these verses in one sermon. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul is again reminding them. I think it's interesting here um, that Paul is reminding them of what they have done for him. Do you notice that? Paul is reminding them of what they've done for him. Obviously, he's thanking them once again for this gift that they have brought to him here and now through Epaphroditus, but he's even recounting the times that they have partnered with him in the past by providing for his need. He says, you've done this multiple times. Now, this was not something, obviously, even, even in this passage, we know this was, wasn't something that, you know, like a monthly gift that they were doing, like we would typically see a lot of times in, in uh, missions help today. This was specific needs that they were sending help for as they would hear about this to Paul. And here they've done it again after a period of time uh, where they were not able to for whatever reason. But Paul is recounting these different times. Why is he doing that? Why is, why is Paul thinking that? Surely they know what they did, right? Surely they know the, the times that they've helped him. Paul is, is again auditing. That's the A word right there. He's, he's remembering. He's looking back on their partnership and showing his gratitude for the things that they had done. You ever keep a list of the kind things that people do for you? Um. I don't know about you, but I've been guilty of this. You know, somebody invites you over to their house and, and so you feel like, well, I gotta invite them over to our house, you know, reciprocate. Doesn't say that Paul ever sent anything back to them. They were just meeting a need. You know, how often do we, do we feel like we, we wanna pay somebody back? That's not what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I understand that you have partnered with me and I want to point these things out and I want you to know that I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Do we keep track of what people do for us so that we can remind them and thank them? Or do we keep track of what people do for us so that we can 
get even so that we can settle the score. Paul remembers the things that they have done for him. And he doesn't use that in a warped way. He uses it in a godly way to bring it back up and and to show them, you guys have over and over and over again done what God desires for you to do. And he's saying, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. He says right there in the beginning of verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. He's remembering and recounting and reminding the Philippians of the work that they had done. See, when we're content in Christ, when Christ is enough, when we're not worried about having all these earthly things, when we're not worried about being satisfied in these earthly things, we can remember what other people have done with gratitude. We can remember the help that people have offered with gratitude. Fourthly, we will anticipate sanctification, hopefully, as Paul's bringing this up. He moves on to verse 17, and he says this, not that I seek the gift. I remember all these different things that you've done for me, but not that I seek the gift, but I seek what? The fruit that increases to your credit. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul's primary concern, even in his gratitude, is that they understand that the things that they were doing really weren't for him. Yes, they were meeting Paul's physical needs, They were partnering with him in his gospel endeavor through these physical needs that they were meeting, but ultimately it wasn't for him. Ultimately, it was for Christ. It was for Christ. And he said, as you have continued to do these things, as I've reminded you of these things, these ways that you have helped me, these ways that you have partnered with me in the gospel, as I remind you of these, I know that they are creating fruit. They're building fruit. They're building spiritual fruit for you in your life. Again, that goes back to the first question that we asked. Are we willing to be the ones in need so that somebody else can meet that need so that they can grow spiritually? Do we ever think in those terms? Are we just so focused on ourselves that we don't want to be a trouble. We don't want to be a bother. We don't want to have somebody else look down on us. And yet God could be using these things to produce fruit in someone else's life. What does he call it? He calls it a fragrant offering. A fragrant offering. It's his incense, a sweet smelling savor, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's how Paul viewed the work of the Philippians on his behalf. Yes, it was an actual sacrifice. If you go back, if you remember when we talked about giving um, a few weeks ago, a few few months ago maybe at this point, uh, we talked about giving and the necessity for giving, but, but more importantly, the heart of giving. We looked at the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters eight and nine. 
And we see at the end of chapter eight that there's an example that Paul points to for the Corinthians of people who gave sacrificially, even out of their need they gave. So he was talking about the Philippians, those who were in Macedonia. And of course, we see here that they were the only ones that did it. <laughs> they, they were the only ones that partnered with him. Out of all the churches that, that Paul planted, they were the only ones that partnered with him. Now, if you remember in Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that he specifically worked so as not to be a burden to the churches. So I'm, we're not gonna you know, blame all the churches necessarily for not supporting Paul. But there's a special relationship here. There's a bond here between these, this church and, between, and Paul. There's a partnership in the gospel that no, no other church participated in. And he says, that was not on my behalf, but that was a, an offering, a fragrant offering, a, a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Do you look at the opportunities that your need causes for someone else to grow? Are you anticipating sanctification, hopefully, in others' lives? If we're partnering through contentment, then we will. If we're partnering through contentment, we will afford encouragement confidently. Notice what he says. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. A couple of important things I want to point out here. Obviously, God will supply all of your needs. You know, he's, he's recognizing the sacrificial nature of this gift. And he says, look, you're not doing it for God to supply your needs, but know that God will supply your needs. And of course, Paul is definitely talking about physical needs here. But I think even more importantly, and even in the context that we just read about spiritual fruit, Paul's thinking about spiritual need as well. Why do I think that? He says that God will supply every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You know, a lot of times you hear this phrase dropped off right before in Christ Jesus. And we hear people proclaim about God is, has, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? And he does. God can provide all your needs, and he, he does. And we say he, he can provide all your need through his riches and glory. And we think about heaven. But what's he saying? Where are those riches? Riches in glory in Christ. It's the glory of Christ that is the riches that will sustain us. Think about that. It's the glory of the riches of Christ. That is what sustains us. Yes, God provides for our physical needs. Yes, he, he uses other people in the body of Christ to take care of those physical needs. But most importantly, He's concerned about our spiritual needs. And when we look at this whole context of, of being content with where we're at, and Paul says the secret to contentment is finding our sufficiency in Jesus Christ, what else could he mean? Other than the riches of the glory of Christ is that sufficiency. 
the riches of the glory of Christ. And it is when we realize that that we can say with Paul in verse 22, our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. When we are focused on the outward needs and desires, when our sufficiency is found in our earthly things, in our own self-sufficiency, we don't give glory to the God and Father forever and ever. But when we live in satisfaction in Jesus Christ, whether we are abounding physically or whether we are brought low and in need, we can be content. And when we are content, we can interact with one another in a way that that offers and allows one another to grow even through our needs. We can partner together with one another in a greater way when we are content, when we find our sufficiency in Jesus Christ. Finally, we will affirm love continually. Paul ends with this greeting. But I think it's interesting how he ends this. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I just want to point out two things here. Obviously, Paul is saying, he's, he's wrapping everything up. He's greeting everybody. He includes those who are with him, the brothers who are with me. We know that that is at least Timothy and Epaphroditus, potentially others who are there. The brothers who are with me, they greet you. Paul's desire is to, is to show love to the church at Philippi. Even as he, as he ends this, he's, he's concerned about affirming this love, not just between him and the church, but between other believers in the church. The brothers that are there working with him, greet them. All the saints greet you. Talking about all the people in Rome, all the, all the saints that are here in Rome with me, they greet you. They know about you. They've, they've probably heard Paul's testimony of what the Philippians had done for him. They all greet you. But then he says, especially those of Caesar's household. You remember we talked about that earlier in the book of Philippians. Especially those of Caesar's household. This isn't necessarily people directly in Caesar's household, but people involved in Caesar's overarching household, servants and maybe family members and things like that. They greet you. Why why would Paul include them? Wouldn't they be perfectly fine to be included in Rome and all the saints? Even in these last couple verses, Paul is reminding them of the power of their partnership with him. If you remember early on, he says, the gospel has gone forth so that even, even those in Caesar's household are being saved. And here at the end, he brings it full circle. And he said, those guys who you have provided for me so that I could share the gospel, this partnership has fruit. And that fruit is sending their love back to you even those 
especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He ends with a final reminder of where our sufficiency lies. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I ask you this morning as we come to the Lord's table here in a few minutes, men, if you want to come forward to the front. As we think about Christ, as we think about what he did for us on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, as we think about the reality of him taking upon himself the sins of the world, of that great transaction of our sin for his perfect righteousness so that when we stand before God, we not only don't have our sin, but we have Christ's righteousness. And how often do we maybe even come to this table and remember what Christ has done and yet we're still clinging to our own self-sufficiency in life. We're still trying to, to produce everything on our own whether it's physical things or even spiritual things. And this morning, as you think and you ponder what Christ has done for you, as we're going to sing a song here in a minute, while the, the cup and, the, and, the, and the, the bread and the juice are being passed out, are you finding your sufficiency in Christ? Are you trusting only in him for salvation? Are you trusting only in him for sanctification? Are you trusting only in him every single day? Are you content in Christ? And are you partnering with others in an attitude of contentment? Father, we thank you that you are all sufficient. We thank you that there is nothing that we could add to what you have done for us in salvation. There is nothing that, that we can do apart from submission and obedience to what you have called us to do in sanctification. We know that it is a work of your Holy Spirit in us. Lord, so often we try to find our sufficiency in ourself, in earthly things that are just going to fade away. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are satisfied with Christ, that when we, when we sing Christ is enough for me, that it's not just a spiritual song that we sing, but that it is a reality of our heartbeat. It's a reality of the way that we think that you are enough. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for everything that he has done for us in salvation as we remember him this morning. Pray that our hearts and our minds would be drawn to you and that you would be glorified even in this time of remembrance. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.